<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. get tired of being Beatles. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's away. Mr. John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what you want to do, do what you want to do. If you think it was more keeping it, you don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is Canadian East Coast musician Chris Pecco. This is part two of our conversation about the Beatles' 1964 album, Beatles for Sale. You can find the first part of our conversation wherever it is that you found this episode. And uh, just as a way of note, uh, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I would suggest you go and listen to that first and then come back and listen to this one. In part one, we cover off side one of Beatles for Sale. We're going to talk about side two in this episode. The website for this podcast is romycast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this series. It's been going on for a couple of years now. This is the 15th episode of Series 3. You can find all the other episodes from Series 3 as well as all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. As I mentioned uh, last time, Chris Pecco is an interesting guy. His band, Long Distance Runners, or The Runners as they are sometimes known, was a staple on the East Coast music scene for several years. The band had several East Coast Music Award nominations to its credit, as well as a Juno Award. I was uh, I was curious to find out. Uh, they picked up that nomination in 2016, and it was actually for the artwork on their last album, Elements. We'll talk about some of Chris's album artwork uh, a little bit later on in the podcast. Anyway, Long Distance Runners. They went on hiatus not long after they released that aforementioned album, Elements. That was in 2015 when the album came out. And for Chris, it was time to think of a solo album. So it was uh, a few years in the making, one that he'd been thinking about for quite some time. Uh, so enter Split Down the Middle, which is out now. It's a great listen. I suggest you give it a listen. You can find it wherever it is that you stream music, or you can buy a copy. You can find out what Chris is up to at his website, chrispico.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S, and then Pico is spelled P-I-C-C-O.ca, chrispico.ca. Uh, there are links there at that site to his videos on YouTube. 
YouTube as well as his music on Bandcamp and on all streaming platforms, including that great new album just out, Split Down the Middle. Chris, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Uh, All right, let's jump into side two of Beatles for Sale. I really like this song as a side opener with the notable fade up. It's eight days a week. Yes, you know it's true Hope you need my love, babe Just like I need you Hold me, love me Hold me, love me I ain't got nothing but love, babe First song that has a fade up is what I'm told. Yes. First pop song with a fade up. So... That's a pretty cool innovation, you know. You you forget that too. That you know they were innovating, taking some big steps with the studio at this point in 1964. So eight days a week is it still holds up. Lennon said it was a lousy song. Did you read that? Do you got that there? Did you? He said that in, in 1980. He thought it was it's lousy. Did he really? I'm, I'm but Lennon always. I found a lot of the stuff I read about Lennon. He. Uh, well, he, you know, he, he thought around, disowned a lot of the stuff he did with the Beatles. Yeah, he thought a lot of it was lousy uh, at one day. You know, <laughs> I mean, we'll never know had he uh, lived a, a long and healthy life. Uh, Fair enough. You know, he may have he may have come back, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of interviews out there where he's uh, that was crap. This is no good. You know, and, and so on. McCartney says, "I remember writing that with John at his place in Weybridge from something said by the chauffeur who drove me out there. John had moved out of London to the suburbs, and I usually drove myself there, but the chauffeur Four drove me back on that day, uh, and I said, how have you been? And he said, oh, working hard, mate, uh, working eight days a week. I'd never heard anyone use that expression. So when I arrived at John's house, I said, hey, this fellow just said eight days a week. And John said, right. Ooh, I need your love, babe. And we wrote it. Uh, we were always quick to write. We would write on the spot. I would show up looking for some sort of inspiration. I'd either get it there with John, or I'd hear someone say something. That is what McCartney says those sessions those songwriting sessions i think uh uh, they became less and less didn't they as the years went on sadly yeah yeah sadly because i didn't know that i didn't know they they collaborated one-on-one like that and that quickly so what did you just show up at yeah show up for the rehearsal or for a songwriting session and show first is eight days a week and then yeah, I, I mean, you could say it as exaggerated, but I, I, I believe it. I believe it. What, three hours later, you have eight days a week. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Hey, just Boom. like that. Ooh, I need your love, babe. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you, so catchy, so memorable. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I'm with, I love the fade up. I, yeah. I, I love the way it... Uh, it was written as a possible title song for their yet-to-be-started movie, but then it turned out to be Help. Right, okay. Eight days a week. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Now there's there's one there's a version of it, uh, take one, which was played straight, no frills, just on acoustic guitar, and then on take two, John Paul, John and Paul introduce a succession of beautifully harmonized oohs. I don't know if you've heard that version or not on the anthology. No. Okay. Well, we're going to play it right now. Okay. Is it just me and you? One, two, three, four. Ooh, 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 ooh. ooh, I need your love, Guess you know it's true. Hope you 
nutty. I'll try to remember John, and if I don't, well, it's just too bad in it. One, but hold on. One, two, three. Yeah, it's that. Yes. Oh, it's All right, so you get those oohs and the acoustic guitar. Now they eventually they took them out, um, but you know that that version is on the the anthology one. Uh, and a, another neat thing on the session tapes, uh, according to Mark Lewison, you can hear Lennon between, I guess, taking you know a stab at the song or starting recording. He's working out the guitar riff for I Feel Fine. You know, <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, and, and they worked on that later in this, uh, the same day. Uh, really? so, so he was working, fiddling around with the guitar part for that song that they recorded later that day while they were recording eight days a week. Wow, yeah, I love that. You go through the old sessions, you can hear piece together the history or the nucleus of a song so yeah. so they, yeah. they dropped the ooze um but still some great beatles vocal harmonies on the track so i i want to ask you in terms of harmonies tell me about the track time changes everything from your new album because that to me had a real beatly feel to the vocals to my ear or maybe the, the british band keen but there's a real harmony thing going there what what are your thoughts on that song well like okay so time changes everything it's basically like a three chord song with a, a few you know with a, with with a chorus and so forth you know, similar to like you know like an eight days a week song when you got like a da and a g or a dae laying up just uh, fairly easy to get some nice harmonies going over those uh, those kind of those three or four chords <laughs> song like that like time changes everything um just lends itself to like okay i gotta fill it in with whenever i'm stuck i'm like what what do i need here it's like vocals vocals are my favorite you know auxiliary instrument i've uh, i seem to use so and you do all the vocals on the new album on the record i did on this one yes okay yeah. okay now now so, so what about on the long distance runners track one which opens up the elements album right. um all you or bandmates? Oh, yeah, all the band. All so, the band. So 
may be obvious to a musician, but not to a layman like me, difference between harmonizing with yourself, like on your new record, Split Down the Middle, and harmonizing with bandmates like the, the Long Distance Runners? A lot easier to harmonize to yourself. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, I get to, to, to timing, I guess, and your little inflections, you, you, you know yourself. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, I mean, I prefer both, you know. Harry Nilsson was a guy who did all his own harmonies. Yep. Uh, so I, I listened to a lot of, a lot of Harry Nilsson too, and I, I said, you know, that's not a bad thing. I, I, well, it's not a bad thing to do, harmonize to yourself. Uh, I try to change the timbre of my voice a lot to probably disguise that it's so blatantly clear. You know, you just it's all just a, uh, trying to create that illusion that there's a full band yeah, playing yeah. there. Um, of course, I love hearing a different... Uh, it's, it's, it's great when you have a band too and singing live together, doing harmonies. You can't beat that either. So if I had to choose, I mean, I prefer a band doing it, of course. So but. when you're doing the band harmonies, did you guys, like, was it Beatles style, both on the same microphone kind of thing? A couple of times. Really? Yeah, sometimes. Uh, That's got to be special. It was a track that walks straight as a duet with Ilya, uh, the closing track on Elements, and uh, that was doing the country style face-to-face through a, uh, on the mic together and we're just watching each other's uh, mouths move. And it was like one, one or two takes. And That's got to be special. You know, it's memorable. You, you, yeah. don't, you have limitations of how you mix it, but, you know, sometimes you just say, the hell with it. It was the moment, you know? You just uh, take it. I, think that I get the hair stands up at the back of my neck when you tell a story like that because yeah. I just, that's the magic I got to think of. You're just, you're, you're connecting with somebody and you're both... Right right there on the same page yeah you can't uh, that's magic pretty cool uh next track uh, a bit of magic uh, in terms of a cover version uh, an old buddy holly song words of love did this track until I went back to the record. Ah. I did. I totally... I find this one... Uh, is this the only Buddy Holly track they did? Is it the only one? Because I knew, like, Lennon, they were such big cricket fans, Buddy Holly and the crickets. Well, um, the, the, to answer your question, right, so, so the stage show, they did a ton of Buddy songs. They did uh, That'll Be the Day, Peggy Sue, Every Day, It's So Easy, Maybe Baby, Think It Over, Raining on My Heart, Crying, Waiting, Hoping, all that stuff. Uh, this is the only Buddy Holly song that they recorded. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So those Buddy Holly tracks you just mentioned, that's back in the Hamburg days, or did they keep doing those? No, the, yeah, the Hamburg, the, yeah, that was back in their, right. the, the, you know, we're going in and playing for eight hours days. Right, so I mean, so Buddy Holly, his influence is all over their music, obviously. So it's nice to find, you know, they did like a, an homage to Buddy on, on that song. Yeah, it's, it's such, I mean, it's a beautiful, sweet little tune. You know, I, what, they did that one in that session you mentioned earlier? Was it mm-hmm. the closing? They they did five tracks yeah, in one yeah, day, yeah, and they yeah. put that right. So uh, I love the guitar. I love that guitar. And so I mean, George's guitar playing. I mean, George uh, 
well, you got Carl Perkins coming up. We'll talk about that yeah. soon. But yeah, yeah. Uh, save that. Well, speaking of George, right? Uh, when they when they would play it uh, on their stage show between 1958 and 1962, Lennon and Harrison shared the vocals for Beatles for Sale. Uh, George got dusted, and it was Lennon McCartney who who shared the vocal duties. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the great bit of trivia, bottom line to all of this. So uh, the, the Beatles love. Buddy Holly, um, and in 1976, Paul McCartney bought the publishing rights to all of his songs. Right. <laughs> that's love. That's love. That's, that's love. <laughs> it's a love of Buddy and a love of of money. <laughs> yeah. And then Michael Jackson went and bought all the Beatles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did that happen? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's another story. <laughs> uh, next song, another song, uh, Honey Don't. When you won't Say you do, baby, when you don't Let me know, honey, how you feel Tell the truth, how is love real But I'm home Well, honey, don't Honey, don't Okay, this is one of my Not my favorite Okay Okay, not my favorite Ringo I mean, it was Ringo's chance to, to take the lead And Ringo had his fans I read that Lennon would sing that live. It was Lennon's song to sing live. That's what I, that's, am I right on that? And then they decided Ringo needed a track, so they, they handed over to Ringo for the record. Exactly. Uh, part of their live act since 1962, always sung by John. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, Ringo says, we all knew Honey Don't. It was one of those songs that every band in Liverpool played. I used to love country music and country rock. I had my own show with Rory Storm uh, when I would do five or six numbers. So singing and performing wasn't new to me. It was a case of finding vehicles for me with the Beatles. That's why we did it on Beatles for Sale. It was comfortable, and I was finally getting one track on a record, my little featured spot. So country, see, something we don't talk about a lot and realize that how much country... And Western was a big, you know, came out on, on Beatle tracks. I think, you know, and then influencing bands, I think like the Birds. Yeah. And going from there, you know, it's, it's subtle, but, you know, you look at this record and you look at Onto Rubber Soul and Help. The country influences. Even the, even there. as even as old as the White Album, uh, with the uh, you know "Don't Pass Me By" has got a country feel to it. Uh, what's the Rocky, Rocky Raccoon for Raccoon. sure. Right, and Honey Don't, well, you can call it Rockabilly, right? It's Rockabilly, Country Western, uh, Carl Perkins, right? I mean, that's a big influence on George's guitar playing. You could hear that, like the early George is totally, like he's totally, you know, doing doing the Carl Perkins. Do you love that kind of music? Like you like playing that too, and that's... Yeah, I'm not much of a player with Rockabilly, but, uh, you know, Toronto is a great city for Rockabilly, and I just remember seeing some great, uh, great Rockabilly and, and, and Country Western yeah. Over the years yeah. when I lived here. Yeah. Uh, next tune is yeah. uh, written mostly by McCartney, Every Little Thing. When I'm walking beside her People tell me I'm lucky Yes, I know I'm a lucky guy I remember the first time I was lonely without her Every little thing she 
I love the arrangement on this one, and, and it's got that minor. It's got a little darkness too. It's a, it's a pretty cool. It's a really cool song. I, I think it stands out and holds up well. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Yes did a version of this. And my, I've read that too, and I've never heard it. I was like, I got to hear this on their first record. Yes, I, I, I got I've got to look. I, that, I got to look that up. I know. And would Alan White have played on? Like I don't know. Like, <laughs> Alan White, who played with Lennon later. I, I, maybe I'm wrong on that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but let's just put that out there. Every little thing. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Right, I got track. Uh, Every little thing by Yes. Is, it, is that possible? Uh, in fact. <laughs> what did you find? On their first album, Every Little Thing. Yeah. A I, cover by Yes. <laughs> I know. I, I've, now I have to hear it. <laughs> well, here it is. <laughs> yeah, really? We're going to do it? <laughs> Through the magic of editing, here it is. Oh, wow. <laughs> McCartney sing a lead on that one. I don't yeah, well, it was it was written mostly by McCartney, but the lead was sung by Lennon, um, right. and uh, one of a couple of songs uh, on the on the album that were written during an off day on their U.S. tour. Uh, this song and "What You're Doing" uh, were written in Atlantic City, New Jersey. You know, day off uh, where we're on a tour, where we're playing almost every day. Let's write a song. <laughs> so another hotel song. Uh, Ringo, Ringo plays a little timpani in this. That's and uh, and in uh, the Beatles version of every little thing. Right. So they started introducing a little more, a little more freedom in the studio. You know, uh, George Martin started to, I think, give them a little more freedom, didn't he? Yeah. By this point, you can see it. Like they were just getting more and more confident, uh, and more, I guess, more power. So like, hey, these guys know what they're doing. You know, let's give them a little more freedom in the studio. Uh, McCartney's recollection, uh, every little thing, like most of the stuff I did, was my attempt at the next single. I remember playing it for Brian backstage somewhere, Epstein. Uh, he had assembled a few people. It was one of those meetings. Oh, we have to do some recordings. Who's got what? And we played a few at Brian. Uh, we didn't often check things with Brian. In fact, I just remember it in connection with this because I thought it was very catchy. I played it amongst a few songs. It was something I thought was quite good, but it became an album filler rather than a great almighty single. It didn't quite have what was required. Hmm. 
Yeah. Still, still a good song. Yeah, I, I <laughs> still love, pretty good. I, yeah, not bad. Not, not bad. bad. Uh, next up, uh, some would say maybe a bit of a preview of the track from Help called You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. I don't want to spoil the party. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. I would hate my disappointment to show. There's nothing for me here, so I will disappear. If she turns up while I'm gone, please let me know. Yeah, when I hear this song, I see, yeah, I see those songs coming up, I, I, you know, uh, you got to hide your love away, a little bit of that Dylan influence again, um, uh, even into like uh, Rubber Soul, Run For Your Life, those songs, Lennon, uh, yeah, he, he could just bang them out, you know, I don't think it's my favorite, it's not one of my favorite tracks, it's kind of, a, I'd call it a little bit of filler, sorry to to insult anybody out yeah. there but uh you know again they were writing they had to put out so much material it was uh it was originally written by lennon and mccartney mm. for ringo Starr to sing oh okay can you see does that make sense yeah kind of yeah. but i guess it didn't work eh? i guess i mean uh mccartney says uh, ringo had a great style and a great delivery he had a lot of fans so we like to write something for him on each album i don't want to spoil the party is quite a nice little song co-written by john and i it sounds more like john than me so 80 20 maybe to him sitting down and doing a job uh certain songs were inspirational and certain songs were work it didn't mean that they were any less fun to write it was just a craft and this was a job to order really which ringo did a good job on uh even though ringo did not sing it so interesting that it was written for ringo yeah i never knew that yeah uh you know the lyrics revisit lennon's familiar themes alienation inner pain uh he's at the party waiting for the girl to show up it becomes clear she stood him up decides to leave rather than spoil the party for everyone else you know they just kind of little little melancholy I, I would group it in with no reply and i'm a loser exactly. kind of thing yeah, again, like it, the whole record has a little bit of that, a uh, little bit of moodiness to it. Uh, I love the uh, the little guitar that starts it. The, the right, yes. The little, uh, I guess it's an acoustic strumming in yeah, there. I, yeah. I, I love the sound of that. It's got a real... Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an acoustic album, but there, there's a lot of acoustic kind of up front on this one, on this album. Right, so... Uh, like yeah, think of you know, no reply yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, well, babies in black, babies and loser. In, yeah. Eight days a week. I mean, they all got a lot of uh, acoustic tracks, uh, bed tracks in there. Um, you can feel that as they go on through the next couple of records, acoustic, uh, acoustic guitar became was becoming you know more and more uh, part of their sound, wasn't it? Their studio sound. Yeah, ah, love the sound of a good acoustic. Right. Um, Next track, uh, and uh, I can't think of many Beatles songs that start this way, uh, but a drum intro, What You're Doing. Yeah. Look what you're doing. 
Feeling blue and lonely, would it be too much to ask of you what you're doing to me? So this is Paul's first lead on this side of the record, right? Um, yeah, I mean, this one holds up well too. I, I always like this one. It's got the, it's got Paul the full, full throated vocal. What you doing? You know, and, uh, piano. Was that George Martin on this one playing? Yeah, yeah, piano. Yeah, and uh, and that uh, that very distinctive birds sounding twelve string oh, guitar. Oh, Rickenbacker. Is it the Rickenbacker uh, on this, George? Uh, it sounds like a, 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 a chiming 12-string guitar. Yeah. So I, I assume it would be a, a Rickenbacker. Yeah, it would be the Rickenbacker. So again, like a big influence on the birds and I think people like you know Stephen Stills and guys like that. I remember Stephen Stills saying that this album was a big influence on him. When he right, well, no, and, and this, right? this yeah, yeah. well, the, the what you're doing was recorded in late 1964, mm-hmm. and that was a good six months before the birds became famous with Mr. Tambourine Man. Mm. Uh, so maybe, Definitely. maybe they heard it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think people have heard the Beatles by that point. Um. Uh, lyrics believed to concern McCartney's relationship with Jane Asher. Um, between uh, McCartney and Lennon, McCartney had typically been the more optimistic of the two when it came to songwriting. But in this one, he's expressing feelings of loneliness and doubt in his relationship. Uh, and he kind of developed that a little more on Rubber Soul with I'm Looking Through You, You Won't See Me, uh, For No One on Revolver. He sort of gets like that. Do you write a lot about about relationships? You know, Right. Yes. I mean, it's all part of your experience. So... I mean, learning as a, being a songwriter, uh, you can't help but <laughs> take your experiences and, you know, bring it out in your music. But, but, at, at, what, at, but at what stage, Chris, did you go from, because m- most musicians, songwriters seem to go, you know, you start off, of course, writing simpler songs, but w- what's the first song you remember writing that was more of, you know, you where you sort of went, there's a bit of my life in there, whether it's a relationship or something emotional. Like, it can, does one jump out? It would be uh, Wooden Steel uh, from uh, my first EP. And uh, I mentioned earlier that my father died many years ago. So I, I, I was, that was a big, big uh, upset in my life when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. when I was 16. And I think it took me a good five, 10 years to, you know, just, to start to deal with that, you know, to really get my head around that and leaving that, uh, you know, leaving my childhood behind, but also becoming a songwriter. And uh, that was cathartic to write Wooden Steel. It was about, you know, my father introduced me to the guitar and just the memory of him and the, you know, uh, the hope of like moving on and hoping that he would be proud of me for, you know, sticking with it and doing what I'm doing. I'd like to think I was someone Relax and have some fun Feeling that I'm not the type of guy You knew me as a child When I was crazy and I was wild Could have made you believe that I could fly new day on clouds 
comes above, dreams faded away, and all love's left behind. So that was the first song where, like, you're sitting there. I remember it, like, just when you start crying when you're writing a song about something's hitting you that way. To, uh, you know you're, you're onto something. Now, I don't cry every time I write a song, but uh, you know, I knew emotionally that I touched on something that was healing for me, and I knew that it was a special moment for me as a songwriter. So if, if you don't mind, I, like I, I, it's a great story. So take me back to, like, were you sitting in a room? Were you on the front porch? Were you in a studio? When did it kind of the lights came on and you had a song? I was up on Ivy Avenue off of Greenwood here by the train tracks, my kitchen window. I was living here then. Okay. And uh, the trains used to go behind, the go train behind the house, and I would just sit in that kitchen. The kitchen table is where I like to write. You know, that's my favorite place with an acoustic guitar. And I just had a little tape deck, you know, like a Walkman. Yeah, yeah. I never had, I never had a laptop then. Uh, uh, and uh, I just... I can't, in, uh, wooden Steel was inspired by Blackbird, now that I remember it. Because it, it, and it was a, I just remember the first four chords, it was a fingerstyle acoustic guitar song. And I just, it was like, oh, this is catchy. This was the moment I knew I had a nice little song, something unique to me. And it went from there. And uh, I, the song kind of wrote, you know, three verses and it was done in a few hours. And I just, like I said, I knew when I, when I wrote it that I'd broken through. Nice. Because it was a struggle. I went to jazz school. I was a guitar player, you know, I, but I always wanted to be a songwriter and a lead singer. It was something I really had to work at. It took, so I'm kind of a late bloomer in that sense. It took me until my mid to late 20s to really, you know, learn, so, learn to be a songwriter. So melody came first and then the lyrics? Yeah, melody, chords. You get the chords, then harmon the melodies and then... Uh, da, 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 you know, and then you fit in those syllables with the words, but the words led the song from there, like uh, structurally, uh, you know, uh, it told the story I wanted to tell. So cool, that's a great story. Yeah, I love that story. Thank you. Uh, yeah. and, and and I love the the jazz thing too. So, are you a, a big aficionado? Like, do you love guys like um, Kenny Burrell or uh, you know some of those? Yeah, Wes Montgomery and Charlie Christian. I mean, I. I've really delved into all that back uh, back in the day, you know, back back in Humber days, and uh, it only made me a better musician and really respected, you know, the musicianship of like you know, of, of the jazz players, you know. Um, yeah. But it was really competitive, and I just never had the chops to be a, a jazz guitar player. So you know, I went back to my roots of you know, folk music and and rock and roll is more attainable <laughs> for me. And again, you know, I always just wanted to be a singer. The singer and guitar player. Uh, last track. Uh, okay. Everybody's trying to be my baby. The second Carl Perkins cover on the album. Uh, the only George Lead vocal I on the know. album. Yeah. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up, and they called it me. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Woke up last night, half past four Fifty women knocking on my door Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now It's kind of funny that the running order sometimes I look at this record, you know, like George is right at the end of the record. You think, uh, so maybe the first record 
he usually had two songs, but uh, anyways, yeah, George on this song, I always remember the reverb. It's so reverbed out. I really like the song. I love, I mean, Carl Perkins was such a great songwriter. Um, uh, you know, uh, not again, not one of my favorite tracks, but uh, you know, it's got that slapback reverb. It's kind of funny. Um, heavily processed with reverb. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of strange. Stands out from the rest of the record, I find. Uh, it uh, borrows from a song with the same title, chorus and verses, written in the mid-30s by Alabama-born country songwriter Rex Griffin. Oh. Uh, Griffin recorded the song for Decca in 1936 with the title, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. Perkins recorded his song with the same title with similar music, but an updated arrangement in 1956. And then it's, if you listen to it, I, I didn't know this till somebody pointed it out to me. It's the same melody as Rock Around the Clock. Uh, uh, and also in Hank Williams' Move It On Over and Mind Your Own Business. Right, okay. Same thing. Yeah, now I can hear that in my head. Yeah, yeah. right? I mean. Yeah. Um, the, the Perkins one more sort of blues-based and to like blue suede shoes kind of feel to it than the, the one the Beatles do here. Right, but uh, not not your favorite. Well, again, you know, I, if, uh, the covers. I, I feel like they took a little step back from doing a hard day's night. And again, no, uh, you know, not, not criticizing the Beatles, <laughs> <Hell>. <laughs> but you know, it's definitely felt, must have felt like a step back for them to be rushed by the studio, like get the Christmas record out. Uh, so, you know, A Hard Day's Night was what, all 13 Lennon-McCartney compositions, yeah. and then, you know, they they put eight new tracks and a couple of singles together for, for, for the fall, Christmas season, and, you know, feel like, you know, they had to get these covers to fill out the record. So you can feel a little bit of a rush on some of the some of the cover tracks. Well, I don't think, I, well, I, I know there was never another Beatles album. So 14 tracks on the original version, eight Lennon-McCartney tracks, six covers. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of, but uh, yeah. 40%. I mean, you, that's, you're, you're, you're trying to do this less than a year after you've written a whole album of original material for A Hard Day's Night. A lot of great songs on that album. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then you're shooting a movie and you're touring and you're doing this and uh, oh yeah boys we need you know we need we need another re- another 14 songs for Christmas so. and a hit single yeah and some hit singles as well please yeah. if you don't mind yeah right because it's always about putting it in perspective when you look at the Beatle history and what was done like in, in in what 20 months they did three records they did a movie they toured they where do you find the time to write songs you know you travel you're in a hotel room there's the media, like how much, how much uh, Beatles stuff is out there in that short amount of time? I mean, they were every day must have been booked for something. They they had a vacation here and there, but they were constantly on the move. And, and to, to write what two records a year? I mean, it had to be. It's, it's you know, it had to be burnout by this point. What do you reckon, Chris, is the hardest you've ever worked in your life as a professional musician? Is it right now? Uh, right now and. 10 years ago when the runners were uh, pushing the second record we were it was just you know it was it was booking tours uh and media and working on the next record after you know uh you know and when you're an independent artist you're doing the you know you're working on getting the artwork together you're working 
at your social media. You know, you don't have a big team. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, especially when you're indie. So uh, 2012 was a big, 2015, those three years were a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of push. Uh, and now this past year, I've just been working my butt off trying to get this album out and get it out to people. Let's, uh, let's talk a bit about, uh, about cover art. Uh, mm. So on Beatles for Sale, the cover photo taken by Robert Freeman, uh, right near the Albert Memorial in Hyde Park, uh, which is right across the road. If, you, if, you ever, if you're in London now or if you ever intend to get there, it's right across the road from the Royal Albert Hall. Um, Freeman, you probably recognize his name if you're a Beatles fan. He shot the photos used on the cover of With the Beatles, that now iconic sort of faces mm-hmm. half shadow. Uh, a Hard Day's Night, Help, Rubber Soul. Uh, he also designed a photo collage that was going to be the cover of Revolver, before it was rejected in favor of Klaus Vormann's now iconic caricature cover. Uh, the album is in a gatefold sleeve, which was a first ever for the Beatles. That wasn't that common at the time. And inside of the gatefold, you have a photo of the Beatles in front of a photo montage wall at Twickenham Film Studios. And there's also a shot of them performing. And I was able to dig around and find out that that photo, that specific performance, was on February the 11th, 1964, in Washington, D.C. Uh, what about your cover art? I was, I was looking through some of your covers. Uh, and a, a theme that seems to come up is Perfect Day. Uh, your covers, designers of choice. They, they, there's a, a dear reader. I'll put these up in the show notes so you can take a look at them, dear listener. Uh, so there's a real cool, moody photo of uh, of Chris, you, Chris, uh, for the 2013 album the beach Mm -hmm. um they did a really cool design for the long distance runners album elements with abstract representations of the four elements earth water air fire in case you were wondering uh and they've done the cover for your great new record um it's i'm describing it Uh, it's sort of a triple exposure multicolor portrait split in two you love these guys yeah i love these guys yeah well they actually have offices an office in london and in St. John's, um, it was John Devereaux and Duncan Major, and, and there's other staff there, but uh, I've been working with mainly Duncan and John. Uh, it's been over a decade now, and I, I, I like to, once I find somebody I like, you know, you just go back to them. And uh, it's the fourth record now we've done together, so they always they always step it up for me, and and, and I'm always happy. You know, they'll give me two or three ideas and say, which one do you want? Which one do you want us to go with? And I'm like. You know, the last one here, I was like, guys, that's it. You know, not much to say. You know, I, I love it. You know, you, you, you nailed it. You nailed the music. And they actually, you know, they always help me pick out my album titles. I'm like, here's the, here's the album. You tell me what it should be called. You know, <laughs> usually you wouldn't do that with your designer, but I, I maybe. But uh, I was like, guys, you know, yeah, of course, split down the middle. Yes. I mean. It sums up the record. So it's great. And then on the back of uh, of split down the middle. So on, on the front you have sort of a, a triple exposure portrait that's split in half. Uh, but then on the back there's sort of a collage, uh, different colors. Of, I'm assuming that is the room where you recorded the album. That's yeah. That's my piano in my living room with all the family portraits on the on the piano. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and it's really yeah. it's yeah. colorful and bright. Mm-hmm. Does that reflect 
as far as you're concerned, that reflects the music? Yeah, you know, it's it's eclectic and it's, uh, you know, it's it's got lots of colors and it has, uh, you know, it has moods and, and it kind of, you know, maybe a 70s vibe in there, you know, 70s throwback, a lot of the music uh, with some more modern sounds, but, you know, it, it, I guess it's me and my, Jean jacket and glasses kind of make me, and a mustache kind of make me look like a throwback to the seventies. I don't know, but I look at it now like, oh, I do kind of look like a. I don't know how modern I look, but uh, that's that's who I am. Um, <laughs> What's your favorite Beatles album cover? Mm, favorite Beatles album cover, Beatles for sale. Pepper. My favorite Beatles album cover. I mean, with the Beatles is iconic. Uh, you know. Uh, Rubber Soul. I love the the, the brown uh, suede. Yeah. It's mid sixties vibe. Uh, and they're you know they they're looking pretty. There's you know, a little stone in the picture. Yeah, the picture yeah. looks kind of groovy. You know, I I think Rubber Soul. When I look back, it's your younger memories, right? Yeah. As a kid, that one stands out the most. Beatles for sale. They look tired to oh, me. Yeah. They look tired. Like that's that's been a long. That's four. We're looking at the cover right now, dear listener. That's that's four tired faces. I think. Yeah, you wouldn't think the studio. I mean, I mean, the the the, the label would be so hot on that. You know, it's like, no, guys, come on, smile. You know, where's your yeah. happy? Uh, you know, roses and pink shirts and you know and your, you know, uh, yeah, they got to do. Uh, they had, seemed to have some freedom to to portray themselves how they actually felt that they do look like they're for sale you know they're kind of this is great uh, out and tired liner notes inside mm-hmm. um, written by the great the late great Derek Taylor who was uh, the Beatles publicist I love this part of the it's quite extensive liner notes but here's the part that and you'll you'll understand why in a moment uh, that just really rings home uh, none of us is getting any younger When, in a generation or so, a radioactive cigar-smoking child picnicking on Saturn asks you what the Beatles affair was all about, did you actually know them? Don't try to explain all about the long hair and the screams. Just play the child a few tracks from this album, and he'll probably understand what it was all about. The kids of AD 2000 will draw from the music much the same sense of well-being and warmth as we do today. Yeah. Little did he know. Right? This came true. Sure. <laughs> well, not about the kids and cigars, no. <laughs> but uh, vapes, maybe. But I know, hey? Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's still, I mean, my kids listen to this, to the Beatles. They get it, right? They appreciate it. You and I are sitting here in 2023 talking about an album made in 1964, and it's we're still talking about it. Yeah. It still gives us a feeling. It still resonates with us, right? So that's the magic of the Beatles. So we've been uh, kicking this one around for the last hour and a half or so. What are your your sort of final takeaways on Beatles for sale and on our conversation? And uh, what uh, what do you have to say? I want to say that, uh, you know, it, going back to the record brought me back to 30, 35 years back to when I first was introduced to the Beatles and, you know, and how... And how much, you know, how much has it influenced me and influenced everybody, so many of us, you know, uh, and how it stayed, you know, how, how their music stays alive. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a great opportunity to rediscover the record. So thank you for that. 
Chris, it has been a total pleasure. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. You can find out what Chris is up to at his website, chrispico.ca. Uh, that is C-H-R-I-S-P-I-C-C-O dot C-A. Uh, there are links at the site to his videos on YouTube as well as his music on Bandcamp and on all streaming platforms. Just a reminder that his great new record is called Split Down the Middle. It's worth a listen. It's worth a couple of listens, actually. And it's out now, and it is available to stream wherever you stream your music. Hey, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, uh, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast as well as keeping it commercial free. Any little bit that you can spare helps. And you can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. Greatly appreciated. If you can afford it, please help out monetarily. Thanks. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanak Paul, uh, Twitter or X or whatever the, the hell it's being called this week. <laughs> on Facebook, you can do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me directly at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the.romicast at gmail.com. I answer most of the emails I get. So if you want to fire one off, uh, comments, questions, whatever, send it along. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels, also a big help to spread the word. Next time on The Walrus Was Paul, a visit with songwriter and musician James Clark. Uh, James will be talking about a record that uh, I must say, I wondered whether or not anyone was going to choose. It was the final remaining album from the core Beatles catalog that had not been chosen. I'm speaking, of course, of the 1969 soundtrack album, Yellow Submarine. Um, An album that um, I'm very fond of. I have a lot of childhood memories uh, listening to this album for the first time, Uh, even actually purchasing the record. (laughs) Pretty pretty fond memories of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love it. And and you know, side one. I mean, I think it's a neglected Beatles record because you know, side two is not the Beatles. It's George Martin, yeah. his 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 uh, score for the album for the for the movie. Uh, but those that side one is killer. Just um, we'll go through the songs. I guess yeah. one by one. But it's just amazing. That is songwriter James Clark on the next episode of The Walrus Was Paul. Uh, He's also got an album coming out in the autumn of 2023, and we will talk about that as well. Hey, I'm going to leave you a little bit differently this time. Uh, There was a song that we played a little snippet of during this podcast called Wood and Steel, uh, written by Chris Picco sung and played by Chris Pico, and it's a song about his late father that he talked about. I, I thought it was a great little segment He that was sort of the first personal song that he'd written and, and one that he really feels strongly about. We just got to hear a little bit of it in the podcast. I'm going to play you out with some more of that song. It's from his 2004 debut EP called The Passenger. It's Chris Pico with a song called Wooden Steel. Enjoy. That's it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk, and I'll talk to you later on. I'd like to think I was someone Could relax and have some fun Feeling that I'm not the type of guy 
as a child When I was crazy and I was wild I could have made you believe that I could fly But as I woke to each new day On clouds above, dreams faded child behind I found a world unkind On the old man's guitar I learned to play In the wood and steel He left me something that was Walking along now